we turn to our scripture lesson, at least one of our scriptures we'll be considering for this evening. In Ephesians chapter 5. Beginning, I'll, I'll be beginning with verse 22 and reading through verse 33. This is God's holy word as he inspired the Apostle Paul to write to the Christians in Ephesus. And here in particular, he writes about marriage. And you'll notice in this scripture that not only does Paul give wise counsel for marriage as God has ordained it, but he shows us that marriage is a picture of something very beautiful, a picture of the relationship of Christ and his church. So let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's holy word again. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May he bless its reading and its exposition and its hearing. Well, it isn't for me, or my intent anyway, this evening uh, to exposit uh, that text. We could uh, do that another time. Indeed, I have. It wasn't all that long ago, or at least within the time that I've been here at Hebron, that uh, we did have a series in Ephesians, and I was able to, to exposit that passage more carefully. But we're rather dealing with... Uh, as we have been in this series on what Presbyterians believe, on, on what the Westminster Confession has to say about marriage. And this is one of the proof texts uh, used in uh, that chapter. The topic of marriage is a topic of great debate in our society these days. And according to the, whole, the uh, Supreme Court of the United States... Uh, it is a settled matter, at least it was a few years ago, considered a settled matter now. And according to that decision, uh, our side lost the culture war, as it were. But it should not surprise us, I don't think, by the way, that that's over. These things change over time. Cultures change. And we may well see the day, God willing, when the gospel prevails in this land and the the decisions of courts and the laws of our 
that are passed by our Congress would be in accord with God's law. But it should not surprise us, though it still pains us, to see that a fallen world which is against Christ would reject his definition of marriage. As his words are recorded in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, he says, Have you not read... This, by the way, I'll just say as a side, in the marriage debate, so many people will say, well, well, Jesus never condemned homosexuality or anything like that. Well, first of all, the whole Bible is his word, so yes, he did. Uh, but even in his earthly ministry, he gives his definition of what marriage is, right here in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That also touches on another touchy topic for our day, but we won't be getting into that tonight. But have you not read, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And he says that in the context, of course, of dealing with divorce. But there he tells us what marriage is. It's, it's male and female, one man and one woman, the two, not six, not eight, not two men, not two women, nothing, no other combination. One man, one woman. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. What's especially disturbing is to see professing Christians. It's not surprising that the world would have other definitions and rebellious definitions of marriage. But it's particularly disturbing and should be to us to see professing Christians who claim Christ is Lord, bowing not to Christ in this matter, but to the pressures of the world, to hear them defining marriage in a way that defies Christ, defying Christ by rejecting his definition of marriage. Well, in Presbyterian circles, as we're dealing with in this series what Presbyterians in general believe, uh, we have confessional standards which clearly lay out the biblical principle or summarize the biblical principles for marriage. A lot more can be said about biblical principles of marriage than we'll be able to cover this evening. But we're going to con concentrate on what our confession covers. And again, this series is what Presbyterians believe, not what Reformed Presbyterians in particular believe. So we're not dealing with uh, all of the things that are testimony, which has a lot more to say about marriage and the marriage covenant. But we're going to be dealing mainly here with what the Westminster Confession has to say. Again, it's really what we're concerned with really here is what Scripture says, and the Westminster Confession is just a good quick summary of some of the principles of marriage that we find in the Bible. The original 1647 edition, as we follow says this, begins this way, uh, <clears throat> Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and of the church with a holy seed, and for preventing of uncleanness. As I said, I won't be getting into our testimony on this, but it's interesting to me that the mainline Presbyterians, who 
I left some years ago, uh, later updated the language, and their updated language is just as faithful to Scripture as, as the original 1647 edition is, saying this, that Christian marriage is an institution ordained of God, blessed by our Lord Jesus Christ, established and sanctified for the happiness and welfare of mankind, into which spiritual and physical union one man and one woman enter, cherishing a mutual esteem and love, bearing with each other's infirmities and weaknesses, comforting each other in trouble, providing an honesty and industry for each other and for their household, praying for each other and living together the length of their days as heirs of the grace of life. And also saying this, marriage is a union between one man and one woman designed of God to last so long as they both shall live. Marriage is designed for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the safeguarding, undergirding, and development of their moral and spiritual character, for the propagation of children, and the rearing of them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So you see, even the mainline Presbyterian confession, there's there's no confusion on what marriage is or what its purposes are. Marriage is between one man and one woman, as God created it, as we see in Genesis chapter 2. We see particularly in verses 18 through 24 of Genesis 2. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. For, but for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. I think God was showing him there that there's nothing like him, no helper comparable to him. So starting in verse 21, then we see, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This now is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. No other union is marriage. To call anything else marriage is like insisting that from now on all dogs will be called cats. Well, saying that doesn't make it so. But worse, if we try to redefine marriage, we can call animals by various names. In fact, Adam had the authority there to name the animals, but he didn't have the authority to redefine marriage. God created that. It's defying God to redefine marriage. It's usurping, that is, stealing for ourselves an authority that belongs to someone else. It's usurping the authority to define marriage which belongs to God alone. Another thing we see, as the confession notes, that's spoken of there in the scripture where it says that the two shall become one flesh is that marriage is for life. The man leaves his father and mother and holds fast, cleaves, clings, 
to his wife. It is for this life, though it's not beyond it. As Romans 7 verse 3 tells us, a woman will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So we see that marriage is for this life. We also see that it's for mutual support. As Genesis 2.18 said, as we just saw here, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. A helper fit for him. We see also that it's for procreation as we look back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Marriage is especially for godly men and women to raise up children to know the Lord. As we see in Malachi chapter 2, verse 15, for example, it asks, Did the Lord not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? So he's talking about marriage there, where he made two into one, in one sense of speaking. And what was the one God seeking, Malachi asks? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. We also see that Though marriage was created before the fall, that it has an effect after the fall of remedying sin. 1 Corinthians 7.2 Because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. And then verses 8 and 9. It is good to remain single as I am. This is the ESV translation. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Today is not the first time the laws of mankind have tried to override God's laws concerning marriage. Today, it might be a gender issue. And we've, our culture is painting itself into a very awkward corner by, on the one hand, saying that, that two men can marry each other and two women can marry each other and then on the other hand saying there's no such thing as a man or a woman. <laughs> the two things are, are not, are just, they're not mutually exclusive categories and that there are dozens of genders besides. Well, today it might be a gender issue and in the past, these kinds of problems, challenges to God's definition of marriage have arisen in the unbiblical requirements of celibacy for the clergy for example, polygamy in many societies. By, by the way, when Jacob, David, and others in Scripture had more than one wife, God may have tolerated it in certain circumstances, but he did not command them to do so. I remember hearing someone argue, well, God commanded David to have lots of wives. Well, no, he didn't. God never commanded David to have lots of wives. Jacob and David and Solomon and others were defying God's creation principle when they had lots of wives. And when the Lord blessed them, he blessed them despite their unbiblical marriages, not because of their unbiblical marriages. That's called grace. When God blesses us despite the fact that we don't deserve it. In other times, it involved so-called race. 
in which people from different people groups were not allowed to marry one another. That's a sinful redefinition of biblical marriage. The Christians, by the way, need to realize that the modern notion of race, it is a modern notion, it's an invented notion, Uh, it's totally unscriptural. In the past, when people would talk about races, they were talking about what we would now call ethnic groups, and that's a a distinction that we can talk about cultural and and people, people group distinctions. But we need to get the idea that's only a few hundred years old that there's a black race and there's a white race and there's a yellow race or whatever else you want to say uh, out of our heads. Scripturally speaking, in that sense, there's only one race. There are different people groups with different genetic features, but there are as many differences genetically between two different people groups who we would now call white as there are between one of those white people groups and another people group from Africa that we would call black. Those things are just not uh, rational ways for us to think. Certainly not biblical ways for us to think. Here's what our confession says about who you can or should marry. They're the only only differences in people groups, by the way, that, that are forbidden to marry each other according to Scripture is for the believer to marry an unbeliever. Here's what Scripture says about who it's lawful to marry. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry, who are able with judgment to give their consent. That makes the big difference. Let me just uh, stop there and note, there are certain biblical qualifications for marriage that we'll get into here. But the argument that has been made in the redefinition of marriage in our culture involves a statement that, well, we should be able to have the right to marry who we love just as Straight people have always had the right to marry who they love. Well, know what? You know what? I never had the right to marry the person I love. That might sound weird to some of us. But what if the person I say I love is married to somebody else already? I don't have the right to marry that person. What if the person that I say I love is mentally incompetent? I don't have the right to marry that person. What if the person I say I love does not want to marry me? I don't have the right to marry somebody who's not willing to marry me. What if she's underage? I don't have the right to marry somebody. There are all kinds of things that are barriers to that. No, you know who you've always had the right to marry? You've always had the right to marry, if you're not married already, somebody who's not married already, who's of the opposite sex, who's willing to marry you, and who's legally, legally competent to make that decision. That's who you have the right to marry. Nobody has ever had the legal right to marry the person I love. Quote, unquote. But here's what... Our confession says, it is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. Makes a difference. And as they're presuming here, man and woman, as has already been said in the confession. Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord. And therefore, such as profess the true Reformed religion, should not marry with infidels, papists, or other idolaters. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life, or maintain damnable heresies. Marriage ought not to be within the degree of consanguinity, that is, same bloodline, that's what that means, or affinity forbidden in the word. Nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties, 
so as those persons may live together as man and wife. The man may not marry any of his wife's kindred, nearer in blood than he may of his own, nor the woman of her husband's kindred, nearer in blood than of her own. That last part about marrying your dead spouse's relatives uh, is, we believe, goes beyond Scripture, and so our confession or testimony says that we reject that statement. That had to do historically more with a legal issue going on in England at the time, and so it's been retracted by the RP testimony and by most other Presbyterian groups around the world as well. The mainline Presbyterians even say this. Again, I'm doing this to show that even liberal denominations are violating their own standards when they change the definition of marriage. All, person, all persons who are able with judgment to give their consent may marry, except within the limits of blood relationship forbidden by Scripture. And such marriages are valid before God in the eyes of the church. But no marriage can be fully and securely Christian in spirit or in purpose unless both partners are committed to a common Christian faith and to a deeply shared intention of building a Christian home. Evangelical Christians should seek as partners in marriage only persons who hold in common a sound basis of evangelical faith. Which is the same thing the Confession was saying about us not marrying Papists, that would be Roman Catholics, or infidels, so people of other religions, or as well as apostates and notorious heretics, or <laughs> idolaters, so pagans. So we see that the the only marriages that God forbids would be between an unmarried man and an unmarried woman who are uh, uh, of age. And excuse me, for that. So we see that the only marriages God would not forbid would be between uh, an unmarried man and unmarried woman who are of age and competent. And the only restrictions on that would be that it would be between a believer and an unbeliever. You can't have that. God forbids that. 2 Corinthians 16.14, do not unequally yoke yourselves to unbelievers. That uh, scripture has more, it does has, has to do with more than just marriage, but it certainly has an application for marriage. And then number two, uh, since the time of Moses, between a man and a woman of close blood relationship, as uh, Leviticus 20.19 sets forth. So sometimes people will say, well, who did Cain marry if he couldn't marry uh, his sister? Well, there was no for, no law against that at that point. Uh, but Leviticus 20, verse, verses 17 and 19. So Leviticus 20, verse 17, if a man takes his sister, his father's daughter, or his mother's daughter, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a wicked thing, and they shall be cut off in the sight of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He shall bear his guilt. And then down in verse 19, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister, nor of your father's sister, for that would uncover his near kin, they shall bear their guilt. So, so that tells us that the only restriction that God puts on marriage is not a, not a relative too close to you, nor a believer with an unbeliever. But marriage is for all of mankind, so two unbelievers can marry each other. And then, of course, you have some problems Paul had to deal with in Second Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 7, rather, uh, with what happens if you've got two unbelievers, then one becomes a believer, they're married to each other, how do they deal with that? We'll talk about that here shortly. Um, and then, again, if people are too closely related. Those are the only two restrictions on marriage, according to God, as long as the two parties are unmarried already and of uh, legal age to consent themselves and do. 
So what about divorce then? Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 31 through 32, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 1 Corinthians 7.15 allows for divorce if an unbelieving spouse leaves the believer. Those are the only two biblical allowances for divorce at all. Our culture would say, and this is another way in which we have attacked marriage in our culture, our culture would say that uh, you can get divorced if you get bored. (laughs) You can get divorced for whatever other reason. But the biblical allowances for divorce have to do with infidelity and abandonment. That's it. Now, we do note that in church history, and our own synod in particular has noted, that abandonment does not just have to consist of me deciding, I'm just not going to live with my wife anymore, and I leave her. I leave the house and don't come back. What if I am violent to my wife such that in keeping the, the sixth commandment to protect life, she has to get away from me? Or she has to get the children away from me because of my violence in order to preserve life and obey the sixth commandment? Then we could say uh, that... I have forced the situation. I'm really the abandoner in that respect. And so, so there, is, uh, there is room to consider that to be abandonment. But really, only abandonment and infidelity are the legitimate biblical reasons for divorce. So our confession says, Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage giveth just occasion to the innocent party to, to dissolve that contract. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own cases. So, in other words, no no-fault divorces, according to, the, uh, according to the confession, and I think according to Scripture, they're getting this from Scripture, and no, no uh, redefining abandonment to have such a loose definition. Yes, we consider uh, violence to be a, uh, in terms of you're trying to obey God by keeping the sixth commandment. Uh, but other other things, we can't just start to redefine these things to such a, a degree that, well, you made me uncomfortable and so I'm going to leave that, all sorts of excuses. As they say, a sinful mankind will study, although the corruption of man be such as it is apt to study arguments unduly to put us under, so that we, we, we are... We're very clever at figuring out excuses for breaking up marriages. But God only allows, because of the hardness of the human heart, certain circumstances. And because the corruption of man is... Oh, excuse me, I already uh, already read that. Uh, The modern concept, though, of no-fault divorce ought not to be found among Christians. We might be thinking that our confession treats marriage as just a series of legal technicalities as we look at it this way. But keep in mind the point here is to be biblical. 
biblical in our thoughts, our beliefs, and practices in all areas of life, including marriage, which is one of the most important areas of life. We see many reasons why God created marriage. But another reason why we should protect and honor marriage as God defines it is not just because of these legal technicalities, but because it's a beautiful and theological thing. Marriage is an image given by God of the glorious union of Christ and his church, as we saw earlier when we read in Ephesians 5. Again, we're not going to have time to expose all this, but we see that, that wives are to submit to husbands as to the Lord, and of course that also implies, uh, just as with any other earthly authority, that uh, we don't submit when we're commanded to, to disobey God or forbidden from obeying God. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And he cleanses her with the washing of water by the word. So as a man leads his family, for example, in family worship, there's this there's a sense of taking the spiritual bath together. There's a great intimacy in that. There's something very beautiful. But we see we are members of Christ's body and of his flesh and of his bones and, and the two being joined together as one is a picture of that. Paul says in verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Back in verses 25 through 27, husbands love your wives as just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The spiritual headship of the husband, his love for his wife, her submission and respect to him, their self-sacrifice in those areas, aren't tools to be used for male dominance, as the feminist would say, or evidence of some kind of chauvinistic intent upon the writers of Scripture or the Apostle Paul in particular here. They're meant to give the world a picture of the relationship of Christ with his church. This is a beautiful thing. Now, do you see why Satan has attacked marriage from every angle? He doesn't want people to see that picture. And you see then on the other side of that coin why we have to defend it. We look forward with eagerness to the day when Christ brings us to himself as his bride. He's prepared us spotless and without wrinkle for marriage with our beautiful and beloved bridegroom God. Honor marriage now and thereby give the world a picture of the relationship of Christ with his church. Well, let's pray. Lord, may we see your intent in marriage. And so we pray that you would strengthen marriages, that the world might see your beauty and glory and the relationship of Christ to his church. Help us, therefore, to honor marriage as you created it. For we pray in the name of our bridegroom, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.